what can I do well that I want to do more of and continue to grow it and make it better? Hey, my name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why niching down will actually build your business, how to transition from being a hobbyist to a business owner, and how much time you'll need to do that, and how to market and create a course even if you don't think you're an expert. Today, I'm joined by Danielle Spurge from the Meriwether Council. Danielle helps entrepreneurial makers leverage their talents to create sustainable craft-based businesses and was started in 2010 and based out of Virginia. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so you told us that you started off by growing an embroidery business where you made 8000 the first year and then grew to 74000 the second year. So tell us a bit more about this experience. What do you find separates someone from making you know four figures to grow to an almost nearly six-figure business? Yeah, that was my experience. Um, you know, pretty low four-figure year, my first year in business, and then upper five figures in that second year. And now that I've worked with so many makers and have been through the experience myself, I I honestly think one of the biggest factors is people really honing in on what it is they actually want to be doing and what is actually a marketable product for them. Uh, For me, that was a huge shift in really being honest about what do I like doing and what do I want to continue to make? Especially when you're doing a handmade product, it's really important that what you're doing is sustainable, not only in production, but in your own like mental state of doing it over and over. And I think, you know, one thing people can really do is just be really honest with themselves about what do they want to make? How much of it do they want to make? And then build their business based on those realities. Mm. What, what were you doing that you decided to to stop doing when you started thinking more, more uh, I guess, uh, consciously about this? Yeah. So when I started my business, it was really from a place of no plans. Um, I was in college and I had planned to go to graduate school. And at the very last minute, like on the eve of college graduation, I decided not to go to graduate school. And so I didn't have any plans. And I just decided to start my business because that's something I'd always been interested in and had been researching throughout my senior year. And so I decided to just go for it since I didn't have anything else to do. (laughs) And um, so I started, you know, really from this place of, like I said, no plans. And I was making all sorts of different products um, and just trying to see what would land and what do I like doing. And I do think that is an important step for a lot of people to take is just trying things and see what works and adjusting from there. But I was making a lot of sewn products, um, you know, fabric buntings and different, different like sewn projects. And I just decided that I really wanted to only be embroidering. That was kind of my like main thing that I loved to do. And it was the thing that I felt the most drawn to. I had the most creativity concerning. So once I like really cut the other stuff out, I was able to really focus on 
those embroidered projects and do more of them, evolve them better, do them differently, do them better than I had been doing them, market them better. It's really, you know, about finding that niche and digging into it. I think that is really what separates a lot of, you know, these people from those people or people who are struggling is they're just too afraid to go all in on something. And for me, that was like a really huge step. So I always suggest people do that. Yeah. So you're talking about two things. It's like focus, but then also focus on what you're most passionate about. And these are certainly uh, lessons that I hear often from entrepreneurs. I'm interested in hearing what kind of questions did you ask yourself to determine that this particular niche was what you would be focusing on. How did you how did you arrive at that point where you said, okay, let me cut everything else out? And again, like you said, it's a big, big step and it's fearful because you are essentially making a decision that could, you know, essentially make or break you because now you are making a decision to cut things out of your business and then focusing, going all in on on one thing. It's a big step. So what kind of questions did you ask yourself to make sure that you felt comfortable enough to make that jump? Well, for me, it was a matter of accessibility. I really, you know, I was doing this business thing and I'm like, if I'm going to do this, let me do this on my own terms. I'm already so doing this on my own terms because I have no reference. I have no experience. (laughs) Let me just continue to do this all on my own terms. So for me, I really wanted to be able to move around freely, whether that means like within my workspace or within my state, within the country. I really wanted to be able to like travel easily with my stuff. And for me, embroidery was a very easy product to take with me. It's lightweight. You don't need a lot of stuff for it. You don't need a machine. It's all human powered. Um, And so that was, that was one of the biggest factors for me. And I know that sounds like weird probably to some people, but for me, that was a really major factor because it made it more enjoyable for me to do it. And it made it easier for me to do it. And so that was a huge factor in happiness and production. And I also just like I had to step back and think about what is it that people are asking me for? What do people come to me for? What do they say? Like, what do I hear from people at shows? At the time, I was doing a lot of shows like weekly markets And I was just listening to what people were telling me. And I was like, you know, this seems more interesting to people. It's more interesting to me. So let me just dig into that further. And I'm sure that you hear this a lot too, but, you know, people often feel like if they cut things out, they cut people out and they're afraid of cutting off, you know, the chance of making money, especially at Mm -hmm. the beginning, because it feels like the more things I offer, the more people who can buy from me. But you know, I'm sure you hear this, you know, the opposite a lot of times is truer, where if you're doing one thing super, super well, more people who want that one thing done super, super well are interested in it. So that was really, for me, the biggest, uh, the biggest factor was, what can I do well, that I want to do more of and continue to grow it and make it better? Right. So it's also not always something specific about the product that you might be passionate about, but it you could be about the type of business or type of product you want to focus on that gives you the lifestyle that you can can create. Because it sounds like that's something that you mentioned, which is that it wasn't so much about the product itself, but you wanted to be able to easily create your products on the go and not every product can fit into that that niche. So that's something important to look at too. Don't, 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 don't look at just the, at the products, but look at the kind of lifestyle that you're going to be 
going to have to adopt, essentially, if you choose a specific product or category. Yeah. And I I mean, and I don't mean to make it sound like I was jet setting all across the globe, but I just wanted to be able to have the flexibility to pick something up and bring it with me if I wanted to like go visit someone for the weekend or whatever. And, you know, it really what it is, like you said, about finding something that you feel comfortable and happy with, not just because you like to make it or whatever, but sustainability of that production and happiness factor, I think is huge. And people often overlook it, especially with, um, with makers and some people, they don't care about, you know, they need a lot of things. They need to be in this one specific place to make their product. That's what makes them happy. So whatever it is, like, just, just go for it because your happiness is going to create the atmosphere of, output really so Mm -hmm. whatever it is the lifestyle that you want to have i think that's you know most people get into being an entrepreneur to have some kind of control over their lifestyle to begin with so it's really a very acceptable place to begin with your thinking right i heard from a one of my entrepreneur friends one thing that she mentioned was that it is a huge luxury that we get to make this choice and it would be a waste if we didn't choose right we didn't actually use that opportunity to say i'm going to choose to do this thing i'm going to focus on this thing so you also mentioned that one of the other factors they looked at is uh, what is a marketable product and something i hear from other entrepreneurs that are just getting started is that they're not getting this feedback loop where no one is saying anything to them, right? They're not getting any feedback from customers. Maybe they don't have a lot of customers yet. How do you, how do you look for direction when you are at this stage where you're either not getting feedback because you don't have a lot of customers or maybe you're just not asking the right questions? Like how do you begin that uh, feedback loop? I feel like for, for someone who like has no customers of their own or audience of their own to give them feedback, or maybe, you know, sometimes people do feel like they don't want to give unsolicited feedback, um, inviting the people around you to talk to you about your work, I think is important. That's probably something I picked up from art school where critique and conversation were a huge cornerstone of production, but also just being aware of what's going on in the industry or the niche in general. Like you can look at what people say to other people who make products similar to yours can look to see like what are people not getting from the market as it exists right now? Uh, what do people say they want that they can't find? What do people say to other people? I think that is not necessarily something I was doing, but I I definitely do that now, um, you know, in researching for other things. Like what do people say they want that they can't find? Um, whether that's my audience or a different audience is still insightful to me. Mm-hmm. Another thing you had mentioned to me was that uh, you were not afraid to niche down, like you mentioned earlier, and how it actually had an impact on your pricing. So let's start with the first part about niching down. I think uh, it's like a, a, a exercise a lot of entrepreneurs go through where they realize they have to focus, but then the next question is how focused, like how much should I be niching down? How small should it, should it go? What kind of questions do you think entrepreneurs should ask themselves to, to determine if they have focused down enough? That's a good question. Um, I think it, it actually makes like logical sense to start small and then build on that. Like, I don't know if there's such a thing as too niche 
I really believe there is a, a, a market for every product, um, whether the niche is big or small. Um, I love to see like with a lot of the people I work with now, they kind of start with one idea and then it kind of evolves and they bring in products as they get to know the people who they want to serve and who they are serving. They bring in products because they're inspired by that audience or those problems that the audience has or the problems that they have that they want to solve. Um, And so it's almost like the natural progression to start with like one super specific thing that someone likes to make and then make selections and decisions based on how that goes. Um, But on the other hand, I know there's people who start out like me who are like, let me make all the things and then pick one. So I, I don't know if this answers your question necessarily, but you know, starting small, I think is great and necessary. And then building from there, Um, because, you know, I sort of went from this place of like making several kinds of things to making one thing. And then from that one thing that I really love to do that I was niched down about, I was like, well, now like the, the natural next step or the natural like evolution of this would be to do this other thing that's very similar to this, but it's like next level in some way or serves the people who already bought this one thing and now they want something else. Um, So I don't think you can be too niche, especially as a maker. I think people really love to see a specialty. Um, And it's in some ways even more of an assurance to the browser or buyer that you have this specialty and you're really, really, really good at one particular thing. Um, especially when you're starting out, it's not, it's less confusing for the buyer to see something that is super concentrated. Right. So does this, to you, does this mean what as, as uh, small as one product, one product category, or are you talking about like just start solving one, I guess, uh, audience's problem, like how finite or how small do you, would you recommend someone start off if they'd want to start at the very beginning and then grow from there? I guess it kind of depends on the process the person is using or the uh, manner, like the craft. You know, I know for some people, there's, you know, very specific, like painters, you can make big paintings, small paintings, you know, there's only so many, you know, ways to kind of do something, but you usually have like a style. Um, And so for a painter, they might have their one very specific style and they apply it to various different products like big, small prints, whatever. Maybe they're transferring their artwork to some other product, but their style is really their specialty. And so in the case of someone like that, I'd say like you can have more products. Uh, But in the case of someone who's like making one thing at a time, you know, as a jewelry artist, you know, start with like a really concise collection, like two, three, four products that really go together and really build them out. And I mean, this would this even now I'm just like thinking about what I just said. And I'm like, well, it really depends on the person and what their product is and what they like to do. So it's like really a hard question to answer. Mm-hmm. But I don't think some I don't think people should be afraid to have two or three products in a shop to start out. They just have to be, you know, really solid. 
Right. Yeah. So one the one thing when I think about the 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 makers that are starting businesses is this uh, concept in the book uh, the E Myth, which is around the idea that there's a technician, which is someone who's really good at making something, that mm-hmm. has an entrepreneurial seizure, meaning that all of a sudden they are mm-hmm. have this like uh, drive to think, okay, I'm great at making this thing, I love making yeah. it, I'm I should start a business around it, and quickly they'll learn that it's a whole different skill set, right? Building a business is a whole different skill set than just being good at making the products being good at production is different than building a business. What do you what do you find is the most common challenge that you see makers that are trying to make this uh I mean I wouldn't even call it transition. They're trying to basically create another a, a new skill right on top of what they a skill they already have. What is the biggest challenge you see people that are going through this uh transformation? I think the biggest challenge is probably exactly what you said is they don't they didn't realize that it wouldn't be just make it and sell it. <laughs> There's like a thousand steps between make it and sell it and a bunch of steps after sell it to be in business. Um, I think that is absolutely like, I always, it's sort of similar to what you just said from the book, but I always say it's kind of like the opposite of what we see on something like Shark Tank, where these people who have these this entrepreneurial spirit in them already, they've come into some situation where they're like, I had a problem and I fixed it with this app or this product or this thing. You know, most makers come into business sort of like accidentally where they just were making things that they love to make for themselves or their kids or their friends or whatever. And people around them started telling them, you should sell these. And they're like, yeah, I should. And then they just thought that would be it. And they didn't realize, you know, oh, I have to have this and this and I have to do that and this. And, you know, that they just they didn't realize it. And then they get discouraged that they don't know how to do it. And they just give up too easily or they give up too soon um, because they're intimidated by all of those, those things that make business business outside of the product. Because, you know, as people settle into their business selling products, I think they realize, you know, it's like 30% making your product and 70% doing business. Uh, which I think some people don't want. And that's why they like back out of business because they just really do want to just be makers and they don't want to have the stress of business. But um, I definitely think that is the number one challenge is people just had no idea <laughs> what what it would involve. Right. And for people out there that are stuck in this phase, what do you recommend they look at at their bi- in their business and their process and their life? Or what should they focus on to to determine how to unstick themselves from this situation? I know for, for the people I work with, a lot of times they're up for the challenge of business. Um, you know, the people who come to a, a point where they're like willing to invest in like coaching or courses or whatever, they're, they're willing to stick it out for business, uh, but they need to compartmentalize things or prioritize things and look at things in pieces rather than this one big conglomerate of business So I usually like to suggest like pick one avenue of marketing that you can focus on for a little bit and see, you know, how does that go for you? Or, you know, just pick one thing at a time and work through it, create some kind of a system because it's a lot less intimidating when it's one thing (laughs) and you can create a system for it and then move on to the next thing. Like everyone thinks they have to do all these social medias all of the time Mm -hmm. at 100% output. And that's not even really true. It's just what we've been like conditioned to believe. I think also people compare their 
micro business, and in this case, a lot of maker businesses are one person, they compare their one person operation to Pepsi or whatever giant conglomerate that has this infrastructure that they'll never have doing all of these things. And they're like, I can never succeed because I don't have that. And it's like, no, you just have to work within your means. Um, You know, no one expects you to operate at the same level as this giant conglomerate. So it's just like really being realistic and honest with oneself about what can they realistically achieve in a day and focusing on just a couple of things and not not letting the pressure to participate in everything take over. Right. I think uh, just as much as you fell in love with being a maker and, and on the production side, you have to fall in love with the marketing as well. But to your point, that doesn't mean you have to fall in love with all of marketing and pick, and, right. pick everything. But there might be, hopefully there's something out there that vibes with, the, with your personality type of person you are. Or like you're saying, create a system that makes it so seamless and frictionless to consistently show up in terms of showing up with the marketing that you're able to scale from there without having to necessarily fall in love with that process. So yeah, I think it's important that you can't just, if you just completely are in love with the production and making, be a maker, it's not going to be enough. You have to go from not just that, but you have to be as much about getting your product out there. You have to love that process as well, just like just like you're saying. So yeah. it sounds like there's a couple of stages that I usually see, which is that there are people that are doing this as a hobby, usually meaning that they'll sell this, they'll probably start selling on Etsy or something and then turn it into a side business, probably still selling on Etsy because it's like a lot of handmade and then transitioning to either their own website through Shopify or some other other platform into a full-time business. So can you talk to us about the stages here and, and what's important to jump from each stage to the next? Like let's say that you are doing this as a hobby and you want to actually be able to make enough money on the side to save up for a big purchase or something. Like what should you be focused on to go from the hobby stage to what was someone what what you would consider more of a side business? Yeah, well I think definitely again just being realistic about you know, not rushing <laughs> into, you know, thinking you have to have everything done perfectly immediately is a really big realization that people have to have um, so that they don't get discouraged too early on. I honestly believe that is the most major downfall I see often in people is they want to go from, like you said, hobby to side business, um, you know, something that sustains or generates, um, you know, usable money for them and their Mm -hmm. family and pays for things. Um, they just get discouraged too quickly. So being realistic is like the first thing, uh, for, for me, I find that with my makers who are like literally hands-on making one thing at a time, um, or, you know, several things at a time, whatever, uh, it's a matter of like having enough product, making enough product to meet whatever goal they have. So they have to be really specific about what their goal actually is, because then they'll know that they got there. (laughs) That's one thing I find people, they don't have a goal, so they're not even sure what they're working towards. Um, So you have to have a goal in mind, and then you can create a plan for product to meet that goal. I get emails from people all the time who are like, I want to generate X number of dollars, but 
you know, I'm struggling and then they send me a link to their shop and I click through and I'm like, well, you only have three products in your shop. So even if you sold all of these right now, you wouldn't hit your goal. You need to (laughs) have a shop that presents in a way that it can generate what you want it to generate. It's not the shop's fault. It's not even the product that you're selling. It's there just needs to be enough of it for you to get where you're going. So I think that very first thing is being realistic and setting a goal so you know what you're working towards and you'll know when you get there. Um, Because that's, I see that all of the time. People, they have goals and they're like, why aren't I reaching my goals? And it's like, well, you don't have a business that could reach that goal. You need to do more or you need to do something different um, in order to get there. So a lot of times that comes down to how much product does a person have and also pricing, which is like its own big issue. Um, But I think for a person going from hobby to business, that goal, knowing what that goal is, is like of massive importance. Right. So I'm, I'm not sure if you had to go through this, but then there's that stage where someone might be working a, a nine to five and they're doing this on the side. It's generating, generating in, an income or a side income, yeah. but not enough for them to quit their day job and go into full time. Yeah. So either from your experience, if you had it or from others that you worked with, what about that? Like, what's the, the key that you've seen or what is the pattern that you've seen of success from people making that jump from side business to full time business? Yeah, this is one thing. And I know this is very like a massive privilege and very uncommon. My experience was very different from the experience of most of the people I work with, um, where I had just graduated college. And I, because of the issues that precipitated me not continuing on this graduate school path, um, I did have some support from like my parents, my family, like this whole thing was disrupted, you know, at the very last minute. And so I think people just kind of felt bad. (laughs) My parents wanted to help Mm -hmm. me get settled into what I wanted to do instead, since I couldn't do this other thing. And so I did have some financial support from somewhere. I know some, a lot of people do have that either from a spouse or from savings or whatever. So in that sense, that's not crazy, outlandish, ridiculous, but Um, I never worked a nine to five job while I was running my product based business. And that is unusual. But I know from my students and friends of mine who do this, that a lot of it is like, it's just not glamorous. Like there is a lot of hustling sometimes to make space in your day, make time in your day to put things into your business, whether that's like man hours making things or marketing and all that kind of stuff, the business side, <laughs> um, it's it's really not often that glamorous. There is a lot of work. It is really hard. I think in in my case, the people I know for sure who are doing this, they're, they don't necessarily have the desire to completely leave their job. They want to have their job for various benefits or you know, they, they love their job or they've invested a lot of time and effort and money into having that job. Like they have various degrees or whatever, and that's the job that that's like their career. And then they have this passion business, right? So some people, if they want to, I have had students who have scaled back to part-time from full-time because their business was able to supplement some of that income. Um, 
I think a lot of it is about planning and having a plan for saving and slow, like being really willing to do it slowly if you have to, because that's like the safe way, I guess, to do it. Obviously, everybody's going to have different financial situations and what they need, different financial needs that they need to have met. But um, I think just having the the willingness to take it slow and be really, you know, intentional about where you're putting your effort and your energy and not allowing yourself to scroll through Instagram for several hours a day, like little things like that really do add up. Mm -hmm. I hear it all the time from people who are like, once I stopped doing this thing that was just busy work and I was able to focus on doing this other thing that actually mattered that was a massive help. (laughs) So, you know, sometimes it's really simple things and sometimes it's bigger things like full-blown financial planning. Um, But I think planning in general is the top thing and then time management. But that's such a nebulous sort of abstract idea because we all have different things that we need to manage our time with and from day to day that changes. So there's really no one solid answer to that but everyone's situation is going to be different so everyone's path is going to be different which I think is important for people to realize too it's not going to look the same for every single person right so I'm sure that the answer to this question is also it depends but I like that you are very realistic about your answer so I want to ask this question which is what is the minimum threshold that you've seen in terms of time commitment that is required if you want to keep moving forward, no matter how slow, and growing a business to the point of being able to go, uh, if to be able to have the option of going full-time. And the reason why I ask this is because sometimes I will see people, you know, posting online about how they are complete, I'm not sure how they do it. They're, you know, a single mm-hmm. parent, they got like two kids and they work three jobs and they're still doing this on the side. Is the, are those stories not necessarily are they true or not, but how, how much time do you really need to put into something if you are a maker and you want to f- eventually be able to grow it into a full-time business of your own? Yeah. I mean, that def- it definitely depends on how long does it take you to make one thing. That's probably <laughs> like a huge factor, but I definitely think, you know, you have to work it in the same way you would work in anything else that matters. So if you have a pet or you have a hobby or you have people that you care for or that you have to go and visit or whatever, like you have to work it in. Um, It has to become part of your daily life, whether it's seven hours on Sunday and 30 minutes every other day of the week or two hours a day. You have to make it be something that you are accountable to. Um, but I guess like bare minimum, you know, starting out, I would say probably like, and you know, seven hours a week, <laughs> seven to 10 hours a week, mm-hmm. um, bare minimum. I wouldn't, I think people kind of have to, again, be realistic about like what they put out and what they get out of what they put out. Um, so if you can put in more, you get more or you get there sooner or whatever, but it has to become something that you do over and over consistently. You have to be accountable to it. So whatever, at whatever level you can do that, I think that is more important than how much time is it. It's a matter of like sticking with it and continuing to check back in on it and make it part of what you're doing day to day. 
Right. I think you touched on how there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are wondering like, how come I'm not succeeding or how come I'm not growing. And you mentioned that a lot of times it's around waste of time outside their business and they're spending hours scrolling their Instagram like you had like your example. I think what's also as dangerous or actually maybe even more dangerous is the time people waste inside their business where they think that what they're working on is moving the needle. What do you see people wasting their time on that's inside their business that, that people should take a hard look at to determine if, hey, is this actually the best use of my seven to 10 hours a week if you're doing this on the side? Right. Oh my goodness. So many things. Probably the number one thing is learning a lot and never doing anything with what you learn or thinking that you're learning things, but you're not actually absorbing any of them. So like watching endless videos on YouTube that teach you something, but never actually like taking any of that and doing anything with it or reading, you know, thousands of articles, blog posts, Pinterest, just spending so much time like hoarding information um, to read later. (laughs) is like one of the things I see people doing over and over. And I've done that too. That is very easy to do. Uh, You know, just hoarding information and never actually like taking action on any of it. And then also getting really um, like spun up about little things. Like one thing that happened recently in my community specifically was this whole idea of like, should we ship for free? became like this super hot button issue and people like freaked out. Etsy did this big push about free shipping and people were just like, it doesn't work for me. I can't make it work for me. And like thinking that their business was like going to like shrivel up because of it and just really focusing too much on things that ultimately don't truly matter as much as we're like led to believe they do. (laughs) Um, That kind of stuff. I think people are super susceptible to just hoarding information and taking small things and turning them into big things. And also, yes, scrolling Instagram for hours. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a fan of the just-in-time learning model, which is just learn enough to do what you need to do this week or ideally this day. And then only when you hit a roadblock where you're not sure where to go or you hit an obstacle that you're not sure how to overcome, do you go back, hit the books, or hit, hit YouTube and try to troubleshoot from there? So kind of go coming with like a troubleshooting mentality rather than needing to know the entire, you know, quote unquote path before you begin, which I think, like you mentioned, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's almost a crutch, right? A lot of people will spend a lot of time learning and reading and absorbing and not taking action uh, because uh, it's, sometimes it's a fear of failure, right? It's a fear of if I get started and try this thing, then I might fail and then I, I'm, uh, you know, I look stupid right in front of everyone. And right. they stick to, to to the safer route, which is, hey, I'm still I'm still learning, I'm still planning, which again doesn't get you to where you you want to be, and, and most likely that's not your goal, right? Just to learn, it's probably to build a right. business. So. You know, because you have experience working with makers that want to build a business, you, we've been talking a lot about about your 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 path and your experience as a maker who's made that transition. Uh, but I want to talk about the the second kind of transition you made, which is now that you've gone through that process of becoming a maker with a business, you are now helping others to 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 do the same thing. I think there are going to be other listeners out there that are also in this phase where they have some some kind of expertise and want to help others. You know, build either building yeah. some kind of service, some kind of coaching, some kind of course uh, around around their expertise. Talk to us about that that transition for you. What was that like? Yeah, so I had 
experienced this um, level of success that with my product based business that other people had like noticed and were asking me about a lot. And I found myself, well, I've always really loved to talk shop with people, um, you know, various business owners. And that's just one of my like things I like to nerd out about. So whenever people would ask me, I like couldn't help myself. I just would love to talk to them <laughs> about it. Um, and I found myself doing that a lot. And I'm like, there's got to be a more succinct way to package this and distribute it so that I don't keep repeating myself. And like, obviously, people are interested. So I started doing like blogging and that kind of thing. And then I decided to make a course. And I had no clue what I was doing when I made this course at all. Um, but I did it and people bought it and it was cool. And then it grew from there. Uh, and also at the time, my husband had joined the Navy as an officer. And so he was in training and he was gone. And I knew that we were going to be like moving and like in this sort of transitional time in our personal life. And I I thought this was a good time to kind of like, why not add one more transition on top of that? <laughs> so um, I started really focusing on this like educational branch of my business and it was so much fun for me. I had spent all these years, probably like it was somewhere between like year four and five of my product-based business that I started doing this. You know, I'd spent all this time in my studio, mostly alone, working by myself. Uh, and it was really fun to talk to other people more often and have other humans involved in what I was doing day to day. And it's also because I knew from my own experience, I had so many people, even even coming from an art school degree, an art school background, I had so many people who were like, that's probably not going to work what you're trying to do. Like telling me like, there's no way you can make this viable product-based business hand making things. And I just wanted people to know that if they have people in their life who are telling them that, that that's not true. Because look, I've done it. Look, I see other people are doing it and you can do it too and I can help you. And that makes me feel good to be part of the success of multiple shops rather than just my own. Um, and it was just really exciting for me to be able to participate in the world in this way, helping other people do what I had found so much like pride in doing for myself. And so that's really where that started. And then that kind of took off in its own way as well. And so I've been running the service-based business alongside the product-based business for about four years now too. And that is definitely my happy place. I love to make my products and sell my products, but I love also to help other people make and sell their products too, because that kind of scratches a different itch. So, Well, it's also good that, that you're still in touch with that side, right? Yeah. It's hard to, to teach to, to people if you're no longer in that audience. So I think that's great that you're able to be a, a student and then also be a, be a teacher at the same time. And it's funny that you mentioned about the objections that people come up with or kind of discouragement. It's funny, it's funny because uh, objections always come from people that have not done it, right? It's never from people yeah. that have done it. It's always from people that don't want you to succeed, not because they don't want you to succeed, but I think it says something about their path, right? That, that they are, haven't been able to accomplish that as well if you're able to do it. So were at the time when you were coming out with the, the, the services and and the course, were there competing services or courses out there? I, I'm sure there are today, but like back then, the four years ago, were there anything, was there anything like that out there? Um, I, I honestly don't know. There probably was, but I like 
didn't even know enough to think about that or like to I like I just did I just have no idea I, there definitely is now um there probably was then but I was like super just like in my own like this is what I'm doing and so <laughs> it's gonna be my own thing and I did it but yeah there's there's definitely it would be stupid for me to think that there wasn't so I'm assuming there was. I just don't know exactly what it was. Right. So for someone out there that wants to follow your path, should they look? Should they look to see if there's competing courses? Like what kind of what kind of extensive market research should they do in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I I mean, obviously in hindsight, it would have been cool if I had done more. And obviously in this past four years, I've evolved my services and courses like dramatically. But I think it, in developing any product like we were talking about earlier too it's like looking to see what do people want that they can't find or what what are the gaps and then filling it um but really also like coming from your own experience I think is the biggest thing and so in that sense like there is no competition uh because no one can have your exact experience or your exact outlook but I definitely would suggest you know at least by way of like making sure you're not calling something exactly the same as somebody else or, Mm -hmm. you know, differentiating enough that people would be able to tell you apart from someone else, like at bare minimum, uh, definitely would suggest Mm -hmm. doing that. (laughs) Yeah. I think the, the imposter syndrome that, that I, that I will see from people that are in the situation where they, they want to, they have an inkling that they might want to do something like you, where they want to create courses is that they will first say, I'm not an expert. And then the second thing is, uh, I'm not an expert with a unique viewpoint. I'm not sure if you face that at any point or if you hear from others that want to follow your path saying similar, similar things. Like, what are your thoughts on, on those kind of, uh, I guess, internal thoughts? I hear that a lot from, from my product sellers that they think something has been done so many times already. You know, there's, there's just no room for me. No one will notice me because there's so many things out there already that are so like the thing I want to make. And my usual response to that is again, that there's a market for every product. There's, you know, a thousand places that you or I or any other person can go and buy pants from, but only like three places that we actually do because of however much we're willing to spend or whatever style we particularly like or what fits us well or whatever. Um, You know, so there's, there's a market for every product People are attracted to different things for different reasons. Your people are out there. Uh, just you have to be visible to them. You know, there's a reason why I'll shop at this store, not that store, even if I can get the same thing at both places. You know, pants are not just pants at the end of the day, right? Like you have different preferences and things you look for. The same reason we have McDonald's, Wendy's, Burger King, et cetera, et cetera. All these places, they have their own audiences and they're all doing well. So anything is possible. You just have to find what differentiates you and dig into that and be okay with not everybody who needs a thing buying it from you. Uh, People buy things from different people for different reasons and that's fine. (laughs) Mm-hmm. And so when you sit down and, and either improve the course that you have today or start a new one, how do you determine what's, what's exercise that you go through to determine what should be in the curriculum, what should be in the course? 
Well, at first it was, you know, this is my experience. And so these are the steps I took, or these are the things I paid attention to, or here's what I think is important and what turned out to be important alongside here's what I thought was important. It turns out that doesn't matter at all. (laughs) Um, And then I do obviously evolve in that, on that same track. Like, here's what I'm doing now. Here's what I've tested, whatever. Um, But then I also learn a lot from my students and their, you know, questions, things that they follow up with me about so I can see, okay, this is a gap that can easily be filled in this curriculum, or this is something that people are struggling with. Let me see if I can address that. Uh, You know, sometimes I have like shiny object syndrome where someone asks me a question and I'm like, oh my gosh, we could have a whole thing about that. (laughs) But I have to stop myself because, you know, too many things creates too many things to maintain and that doesn't serve anybody. So I have to be careful. I think everybody has to be careful about what they spend their time on um, and just being really intentional about where and how they distribute whatever it is they're distributing. So even though, even though I do learn a lot from my students, I think it's a disservice to them to inundate them with things that maybe are not important to everybody. And is maybe just important to this one person So knowing the difference, I think, is important. And I think that just comes from knowing your people and in general what they need and want and that whole differentiation factor. So for me, when I'm building something, I do try to come from my own experience and what I know will be useful to people, but without overwhelming them further, (laughs) because the goal obviously is to help them make progress instead of give them another thing to build a wall <laughs> that causes them to be slowed down. Right. And what about pricing? How do you how do you price your your courses? I'm, I'm looking here. It ranges from forty seven dollars for 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 one course up to four forty seven. So a pretty wide range of of pricing. How do you determine how to price a a, a course product? Uh, for me, a lot of it is like volume, like how much is included. What what do you get out of it? Um, fit like physically, like how much am I giving to you in this? bundle. Um, and then a lot of it, you know, comes from what are the likely results that you could achieve? You know, if, if something has the potential to make you thousands of dollars, then it's worth a couple hundred. If it's something that's just like, here's a quick and dirty tutorial on how to kind of like fast track to this one end result of something is completed, that's different than let's build your whole business from the ground up. So depending on what it is um, and how much is in it is probably the biggest thing and that potential ROI for the person. But then also just like, you know, how accessible is it and considering what people are able or willing to spend in the audience, I think is important as well. Um, But I think pricing also helps attract and repel customers. And that's useful for the business owner too. Like you don't want to have a bunch of people who only want to buy things for $10 probably if you want to have, you know, Like for me, it wouldn't make sense for me to price something super, super low and then want to deliver like a really high quality experience for people because that's not what they've paid for. It's the same way, you know, you can pay for one gym membership that's $9 a month or one that's 
$79 a month. And it's just like, what level of experience do you want to have? And, you know, the $79 a month gym is not going to run a special to get people in there for $9 because it's not their customer. So it's all about knowing, you know, who you want to work with and using, I think pricing is a tool just like any other tool to attract or repel people who are right for you and your product. Right. And, and pricing is such a, a, an emotional and psychological lever too is not so logical where you can just say, well, I spent, you know, 10 hours working on this thing. So I'm going to charge you know, 10 times my hourly rate. And that's what I'm going to charge. It has yeah. so much more impact than, than that. And I think that when you do price things higher, in my experience, I think a lot of people can speak to this too, is that the higher the price of a product, of course, the more committed you are, which I think usually means the more likely you are to succeed. I've gotten plenty of free you know, content or free courses or very cheap courses and I just don't bother going through them or taking them seriously. You know, I think that there is a commitment that you are granting your your audience, granting your students as well by pricing it to the point where they have to commit and you are tracking the type of customers that, that you want, which are people that are have the funds and are serious enough to to throw to throw down the dough essentially to 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 learn from you. So what about what about the marketing side? How do you you create a course? Uh, maybe this happens before you create it at all. How do you begin to build up the the hype and the marketing behind a course? Yeah, I think well, the first time I did this, I was basically just selling it to the people who had already asked me for it. So that was kind of easy. <laughs> uh, but it was never like that again. So yeah, I think I create something and then I, I do, I do have like, I, I enjoy creating content like videos and blog posts and podcasts. I enjoy doing that. So for, for me, a lot of it is like creating like supplementary content that goes along with whatever the course topic or whatever is. These are like, there's like free content. Yeah, like putting out, you know, blog posts or podcast episodes or videos on various channels that sort of speak to the person that this thing is for and like inspire them in various ways, like curiosity wise, like pique their interest or just make them curious about something to want to know more about it um, or address like one of the hurdles that would that would stop them from wanting what I've created so that there's less barrier to them taking action on it once it's there. So if I can help people understand like, Hey, this is something that you currently believe that's not true, or this is something you're currently doing that you don't need to be doing. Um, if they can, if I can eliminate some of those things before they're presented with the option to buy something, that's usually helpful. Um, but I, again, that's, that's just like me. I like to put things on my blog or on my podcast. If some people have like a super, you know, vibrant Instagram community, maybe they would put it there or, you know, it's just about knowing where your people are and where you show up best and putting out little like teasers or for me, that's what's always worked really well is being super honest about what it is that you would need in order to have success with what I've created for you and then helping people sort of get to a place where they stand to be successful with it. Mm -hmm. 
Right. So you're creating the supplementary content through blogs and videos and, and podcasts. How, when you are sitting down to create this kind of content, which is for marketing purposes, how much should you be giving away in terms of teaching, you know, what's going to be sold eventually versus how much you should be using it to build just curiosity and desire to buy the product? You know, I, that's an interesting question because there's like anybody who asks will have like a different answer. I think for me, I, I don't know enough to know which of those works better yet. Like, do you give away a lot of like, here's how to stuff or here's how, why stuff, <laughs> like why you should whatever first versus how you should whatever first. Um, and I've definitely read a lot from different people on like the effectiveness of either of those things. Um, I think it really depends on the, the audience that the person would be presenting this to. I know my, my audience likes to see some how to stuff, but they also need, they might not realize that they probably don't, they probably wouldn't ask for it, but they need to see, you know, potential in why things should happen rather than how to do things only. Mm. So I think for me, it's, you know, understanding these people and what they want and what they respond to and then trying different things out, you know, for certain for certain ideas, maybe one approach leaning heavily on one approach works better than for a different thing that we're presenting to them. So I think for, you know, my advice to people who are like trying to do stuff like this is just like try it out see what you can do for your audience because it's really going to vary depending on who the people you're presenting it to is. Right. Yeah, I think one of the simplest frameworks that I've seen is the what and how model, which is the free content is about what and maybe to some extent the why as well, like why you should be doing something. And mm -hmm. then if they want to know how to do it and particularly how to do it faster, or how to do it the quote unquote right way, that's the paid content that they have to to pay for. Um, yeah, so, so that's, something, that's a framework that I've seen. I guess we could call it like a matrix where it's like, here's what you should do, that's free. Here's how to do it, that's paid but low cost. Then there's, here's we do it together, that's paid but it's more money. And then here's what to do, I do it for you and that's the most money. Um, various like levels of, you know, it can be paid, but it can be affordable or lesser, you know, amount of money. So there's different levels. It's not like, you know, all or nothing. Right. So, you know, thank you so much for your time, Danielle. So MerriweatherCouncil.com is a website. So it's, it's the going to be where the products are being sold. Also for any of the training that we talked about as well. And you're obviously doing a few different things. You got, uh, you're juggling a couple of yeah. almost different <laughs> businesses right now, which are very interrelated, but also not. Uh, where do you want to see the business go over the next year? What do you want to be focused on? What do you want to be working on for over the next year? sort of in a transitional phase again right now where bringing about more of a automated process and streamlining some of what we offer in terms of services so that they're easier to sustain and more concentrated on you know the students that we're working with and then bringing back cuz I really would love to do more of my product based business than I have been doing in the past like 2 years especially so me doing more of my creative products is the big driving force behind a lot of this too. So 
still working with my students and being really intentional about what I put out in terms of services in order to make time for me to have that product selling experience even more than I have right now um, so that I can tap back into that at the level that I would like to just for my own interests. So that's what we're doing right now. I would love to see my business be more of a 50-50 between the two. I don't know if it's possible, but that's what we're aiming for. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Danielle. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify. To get your exclusive 30-day extended trial, visit shopify.com slash masters.